0: You
1: afternoon Ann Arbor you're listening to the Living Writers show my name is T Hetzel and I'm sitting here today with a novel novelist Stephen L Carter uh, Stephen thanks for coming to the studio today it's
2: my pleasure thank you for having me
1: um, this is actually just to mention uh, to fill everyone in this is a pre-recorded show but it's it's happening today uh, but Stephen has come to the studio earlier uh, because he's going to be on en route to Detroit for his reading this evening at 5:30 p.m.. At the Shrine of the Black Madonna on Livernois Street in Detroit. This is a guess because I I haven't been there yet. Um, so forgive me. But anyway, if you the Shrine of the Black Madonna, if you're listening in your car, um, you can head that way and catch Stephen at five thirty PM. Um, and so you're on you're on a huge you're on a huge tour right now, Stephen, right? You're catching your breath in an arbor for a
2: moment mm-hmm. for art fair. For a moment, uh, it's one of my longer book tours. This is actually my ninth book tour, believe it or not. I've done seven nonfiction books, and this is my second novel. I have another one coming out next uh, next summer. Um but I've been, I've been on a lot of book tours over the years, and I have to tell you, though this is one of the longer ones, uh, fiction book tours, tours for my novels are more fun than tours for my nonfiction books because... Uh, when the novels I write—they're entertainments. Uh, they're thrillers, I guess. They're mysteries. I hope people have fun with them. My fiction books, Susanna is written on issues that—that that royal passions. My books don't royal passions, but the issues do. So people tend to have very strong opinions if you write a book about, say, religion and politics or something like that.
1: Right. I can only imagine. Which actually reminds me, Stephen. I've—I've I've gotten ahead of myself. I wanted to just. Briefly read your bio from the back of your book, because you're, you're touring with New England White. And, and I'm so hearing this mention-
2: bio for the first time, because so I don't know what it says from <laughs> the back of the
1: book. So Stevens extending a, a measure of trust towards me. So um, here we go. Uh, and, and to Knopf, because they're the ones that did it, right? Uh, Stephen L. Carter is the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Law at Yale University, where he has taught since 1982, he's the author of the New York Times bestseller *The Emperor of Ocean Park*, as well as seven acclaimed nonfiction books that Stephen just mentioned, including. Let's see. I'll just actually go through the the list of them, and it says he and his family live in live near New Haven, Connecticut, and those books are. Let's see the nonfiction books. God's name in vain, the wrongs and rights of religion and politics, the dissent of the governed, a meditation on law, religion and loyalty, civility, manners, morals, and the etiquette of democracy, integrity, the confirmation mess, cleaning up the federal appointments process, the culture of disbelief, how American law and politics trivialize religious devotion, and finally, reflections of an affirmative action baby. So that's that's an amazing list. <laughs> and it, and it seems it's probably it seems to tell a little bit about um, your interests, your pursuits, at least in in a lot of uh, the philosophical and the public realm. Well, you
2: know, I'm I'm a legal scholar by training and although I write novels and I've now written published two I have a third one coming out next year, I don't feel like a novelist. I? I still feel like a legal scholar who's written some novels. And the books that I've written over the years tend to flow from my interests, my scholarly interests at the moment, whatever those are. Um, A lot of my work is in the field of law and religion, for example. A lot of my work is in the field of ethics, including public ethics. doing a lot of work nowadays on um, the law of war and just and unjust war theory and things like that. Uh, Whatever I'm working on at the time tends to generate uh, the books, the nonfiction books that I write.
1: Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Uh, companion pieces to the daily thought, yeah, definitely. But it was interesting because you made sure to say they were they're not obsessions; <laughs> they're interests. You know, don't use the word obsession and too well, lightly. I,
2: it, it's possible to have <laughs> obsessions. I think sometimes when I write fiction, I get a little obsessed about the fiction, mainly obsessed in the sense of the language, the wording, the characters, things like that. My nonfiction works tend—I tend to write them pretty straightforward method. I, sit down write an outline and a few months later I've got a book but uh, the fiction comes much harder for me
1: mm. well I actually had a chance to read one of your essays because I haven't um I've read New England White uh because it was kindly sent to me by Knopf and then um and then I read uh Honesty uh, uh your essay because that's I don't know if you know this but it's included in the writer's presence which is a text that a lot of um a lot of college writing, the you know the comp classes actually. Yeah, I,
2: I've met students who've read it. It's um, it's an excerpt actually from my book on integrity, which came out oh goodness in the mid '90s. I guess about ten years ago. Uh, and I'm I'm honored to be used to teach English comp. People have told me that. I'm a little surprised by that, but I'm pleased by it because, you know, more th- almost more than any theory that I write about, I care about language. I love the English language. I love the things that it can do. I think it's a beautiful language. It's a language with a wonderful history and a wonderful future. And it's a language that I think it's worth speaking well, worth learning to write well. Uh, It's a language I really love.
1: And just before we came on the air, do you mind mind, uh, uh giving... you said that there were word games that you had to do as a young a young boy, um, right? Sure. No, <laughs> can, I, you, can you give us one of those? Because maybe everyone can practice it. You know, I was <laughs> a,
2: When I was a boy, um, this is, I guess, elementary school. I don't remember exactly what grade, but for mm-hmm. a couple of years, I had speech therapy. I had a number of speech, I don't know what we called them at the time, disorders. I um, had problems with my sibilant S, and I had a slight stutter, and I had some other problems as well. And one of the things we did was we recited... Um, um, all the time tongue twisters you know mm. things like he thrust his fist against the post and still insists he sees the ghosts and, and things like that uh, <laughs> and we spend a lot of time memorizing those and uh, somehow from that I think some of my interest in words and the games you can play with words probably stemmed from that era I became interested as a young boy in tongue twisters anagrams palindromes mm. um, and all sorts of things like that and I've had fun with them ever since
1: and that yeah they make an entrance into your fiction
2: well, it's true that there are always wor- people uh, having uh, clues involving word games right. somehow in all of my fiction. I guess that's because those are the kinds of things I have a lot of a lot of fun with.
1: Do you also do them in the newspaper every day? Sort of, in, it's on the comic section, yeah, isn't it? No, By the
2: crossword. I, I actually don't. I used to do crossword puzzles uh, when I was in um, college and law school. In my early years out of law school, I did a lot of puzzles, but now I don't. The main, the close thing I do to solving puzzles, I play a lot of chess. Um, Usually online, I used to play a lot over the board, I don't so much, the chess world is largely gravitated to an online world, really? especially among amateurs. So I play chess online most days.
1: Is that, do you miss the, because there's something about the object, whether it's a book, like an object is a book rather than just reading something mm-hmm. online. Um, I would imagine it would be the same with a chessboard because there's some elaborate, sort of beautiful mm. wooden pieces I'm, or I'm glad you or-
2: mentioned that because you've hit on two of my passions. Um, I'm uh, One a passion, you said an object like a book. I'm a great believer that reading a book you experience language and learning and ideas differently than other things. I'm actually writing a book about that. I gave a little lecture at the Library of Congress about why books are important to democracy about three or four years ago, and that's a great passion of mine. And uh, in the chess world, something very interesting happens. Um, When you play chess in what we still call chess tournaments over the board where you're facing an opponent, there are these wonderful traditions. You shake hands before the game, and the loser traditionally congratulates the winner. That's the way that the game's been played. But online, where people can be anonymous, completely different people are rude and nasty when they oh, lose. Really? They accuse people of cheating, call them names, all sorts of things like that. It's a very different world. The, the politesse uh, that is part of what makes chess such a fascinating game is largely lost um, through that anonymity. It's the same problem of anonymity online that we see in a lot of other areas where the ability to be anonymous somehow... Strips people of their sense of responsibility to address others a certain way, as though it's as though people believe the reason to be civil. Is because you might get caught if you're in right. civil, yes. as opposed to my view, which is something that we owe each other as a matter of loving our neighbor.
1: Right, as a matter of res- yeah, respect and civility, which yes. we're going to get to, right? Because yes. well, let's maybe we could talk a little bit more about your your background, because um, I I looked I researched you, of course, on the web, and so you were born in D.C. Tell me if any of these. You know, so you know for Wikipedia. Re- I, so, well, I, <laughs> we don't. We don't have to go through every I, I, year, I once, Stephen. I, don't I, I, worry. I, I, I
2: once gave a lecture and someone <laughs> gave an introduction that had some errors in it, and they asked where the errors came from, and they said they just copied it from Wikipedia. Now I sometimes write for Wikipedia, so I like to correct errors, but I've never read my own entry on Wikipedia, and I probably never will. So if there are errors, though, I'll why try to tell is that
1: you. just something you've decided you're just you're not interested? I, in? I don't read
2: about myself. I don't read reviews of my books. I don't read interviews. I don't listen to them if they're taped or something. I, I don't. I was going to ask again. you
1: about that later. If about the. Like reading, because Joyce Carol Oates had a, had a piece in The New Yorker, for example. I don't answer questions
2: about reviews because yeah. I don't read them and I don't let people ask me questions about the reviews. It's funny because when I first started writing, when I was a younger writer, I read all the reviews. Well, because you, you know, wrote
1: them. You said you, right? You, I, you actually I write wrote book, some critiques I write and, book reviews and, and, in the 80s, right? I write book reviews still sometimes. Oh,
2: okay. um, and uh, I used to read all the reviews. And if they were... If it was a bad review, it might ruin my day. Or if I thought it was an unfair review, I'd write a letter sometimes to the editor, which sometimes got published. I'd write a letter to the uh, (laughs) reviewer sometimes. It's just the silly things. But, But I eventually stopped, and for two different reasons. As a writer, I stopped because I realized a bad review would ruin my day. But a good review actually is dangerous, too. Exactly. Because a good review, I always sit there worrying when I write about pleasing that reviewer. There's a second reason, though. And I think of this because I also write book reviews. Reviewers don't write for writers. They write for readers. And I would never think a book reviewer is the person to tell me how to write or the book reviewer might help me decide what to read. Reviewers serve a f- function. So when I, when I sit and write a mm. book review, I'm serving an entirely different function than if I were, say, teaching a writing class. I'm not doing the same thing. And so I think writers are people who shouldn't read uh, reviews of their own work because the reviews are not written for them, they're written for readers.
1: Right, well, that makes a lot of sense. Mm. Well, so I, I won't. I, I won't ask you any more about it. Then that's that. Please don't. <laughs> um, okay, so we've. I've got on your your miniature bio here. Stanford in seventy six, Yale Law seventy nine, and then um, yeah. oh, and you and before that, raised mostly in Ithaca. Is Not that true? mostly? Then- it's interesting to
2: say mostly. No, I I was born in Washington. I moved to Harlem when I was one and a half. Moved back to Washington just before I turned seven. Um, and lived, because my father was, in, this is 1961, my father was in the Kennedy administration, the Johnson administration, and then at the end of the Johnson administration, we moved to Ithaca, New York, and my father taught at Cornell, so that's where I went to high school. So a lot of different places.
1: Oh, okay. Okay, that, that makes sense. And then, um, there's, and here's a little thing, to a little tidbit or so, um, high school editor-in-chief of the Tattler.
2: Yeah, that was the yeah. high school paper. It's interesting. Um, someone else told me that was in there. Yeah, I was, I've always loved writing. From the time I was a little boy, I always was writing something. I've always been attracted to activities where I write. So in high school I was the editor in chief of the paper in college, I was a columnist for the paper, and I was also the managing editor my senior year. So I was responsible for putting out the paper every day, which was great, I loved it, probably the best job I've ever had. Uh, it, when I was in law school, I naturally gravitated to the law journal. Um, every place I've gone, I've done things that let me write. The only thing that constricted me from that was the year I spent as a practicing lawyer, and one of the reasons I probably wasn't such a good lawyer, as, as and, and it's a profession I admire, I couldn't teach law students, but I think it because I, I wanted to write creatively, and I couldn't do that as a lawyer.
1: Right. Well, well, do you ever feel like um those those days when you were in the newspaper room of the the high school or the of the university um do you ever think well why did you continue to gravitate towards law? Was it something you just felt like you you had to do um because of your family no. or because of your like maybe pu- belief in the public no, good? Well, well no,
2: there is a tradition of lawyers in my family. My father was a lawyer. My grandmother uh was a lawyer. Um she was the first uh, black woman prosecutor in New York. But no, um, I went to law school in the 1970s for the same reason a lot of other people go, which is to postpone the decision of what I really wanted to do with my life. And when I got to law school, I kind of liked it. And and I think from the time I was about a second year law student, I probably had in the back of my mind maybe I'd like to be a law professor one day. Although by the third year, I was so exhausted, I said, I don't ever want to see this place again.
1: <laughs> right. Yes, because that was Yale, where you went, and then you, you returned there. I returned okay. there to teach. Um Well, let's see. And now let's see. Um, Well, now now actually, why don't we take a short break and then we'll come back. And if you wouldn't mind, maybe read um, a little like something for us. And so Chaz, shall we go to break? Good afternoon. Uh, If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Living Writer's Show. And today I'm lucky to have Stephen L. Carter in the studio. Uh, He's on tour right now with his book, New England White. And he'll be reading tonight in Detroit at 5.30 at the Shrine of the Black Madonna. Um, Stephen, would you mind reading um, something for us?
2: I'm I'm happy to. Let me read a little bit from chapter one. But before, let me take just a moment to set the scene a little bit for... Listeners, um, the, the uh, New England White begins in the same college town where my first novel was set, uh, the town, fictitious college town of uh, Elm Harbor, and it involves a, um, a, two different murders uh, 30 years apart, uh, which in the end, the connection, if any, between those two murders ends up at least possibly affecting a presidential election. Uh, campaign. The other thing that you have to know to understand what I'm about to read from Chapter One, uh, there was there would be a prologue before that that would tell you that uh, the Carlyle family, Lamaster and Julia, are at the heart of the story. Lamaster is the president of the unnamed university in Elm Harbor. Julia, his wife, is a dean at the uh, divinity school, and they live in a all-white suburb. Well, it's not all-white; they live there, uh, called Tyler's Landing or the Landing for short. With that background. Let me read from just the very beginning of chapter one of New England White. On Friday, the cat disappeared, the White House phoned, and Jeannie's fever, said the sitter when Julia called from the echoing marble lobby of Lombard Hall, where she and her husband were fetting shadowy alumni one or two facing indictment as only virtuous piles of money. Jeannie's fever hit 103. After that, things got worse or faster, as her grandmother used to say, although Granny V's Harlem locutions, shaped to the rhythm of an arrow, when the race possessed a stylish sense of humor about itself, would not have gone over well in the landing, and Julia Carlyle had long schooled herself to avoid them. The cat was the smallest problem, even if later it turned out to be a portent. Rainbow Coalition, the children's smelly feline mutt, had vanished before and usually came back, but now and then stayed away and was dutifully replaced by another dreadful creature of the same name. The White House was another matter. LaMaster's college roommate, now residing in the Oval Office, telephoned at least once a month, usually to shoot the breeze, a thing it had never before occurred to Julia that presidents of the United States did. As to Jeannie, well, the child was a solid eight years into a feverish childhood, the youngest of four, and her mother knew by now not to rush home at each spike of the thermometer. Tylenol and cool compresses had so far defeated every virus that had dared attack her child and would stymie this one, too. Julia gave the sitter her marching orders and returned to the endless dinner in time for the master's closing jokes. It was 11 minutes before 10, on the second Friday in November, in the year of our Lord, 2003. Outside Lombard Hall, the snow had arrived early, two inches on the ground and more expected. As the police later would reconstruct the night's events, Professor Kellen Zant was already dead and on the way to town in his car.
1: Hmm. thank you. Thank you. so I wanted to ask a question about uh, the characters because you you mentioned that that Elma Harbor is the same fictitious town from um, the, your your first novel, um, and so I wondered what is it, it, it was it intentional to to bring? Well, I guess it was intentional. It's kind of silly, but what is it like to have characters that f- figure prominently are in the first novel follow you to the next novel?
2: You know. It, Writers write different ways. There are writers who begin because it's a story they want to tell or because there's a culture they want to explore or a historical period, even a scene they want to set. But for me, I start with characters. I write novels because I have characters bouncing around in my head looking for a story. My first novel, The Emperor of Ocean Park, involved characters who probably bounced around in my head for 20 years. And after I wrote The Emperor of Ocean Park, characters from that novel were bouncing around. Some still are in my head. Um, I tried different novels for different characters. I actually have on my laptop a couple of finished novels uh, with other characters from The Ocean Park. They're not very good novels, not ready yet. The reason that this one got published next is this was the one that was ready first about the Carlisles, but of other people I went to write about. Uh, And that's really, that's the genesis, it's as simple as that. It's funny, Uh, The Ocean Park was narrated by a rather morose fellow named Misha Garland, and, and Misha Garland, who complained about things all the time, would look at Lamaster Master Carla, who was a colleague of his the law school faculty, uh, and he would always say that Lamaster Master Carla had a perfect marriage, a perfect wife, perfect children, perfect life, and so on. So to me, the temptation to look behind that veneer of perfection and see what turmoil might be hidden there, and especially to exacerbate that turmoil by putting the family in the midst of a mystery, that was a temptation I couldn't resist
1: and so and you 've mentioned now that you had you have a novel, novel coming out next summer as yes. well, so that are those involving some of the the characters that have been bouncing as yes. well
2: uh, the, my third novel, uh, which will be out next summer um, interestingly goes backwards to the Ford. It takes place in the '50s '60s and 70s it 's still a murder mystery it 's still a thriller but and the main character is not from one of these novels. Uh, well, that's not entirely true. The main character's name is mentioned once briefly in one of his novels, but no one would remember that. Uh, but some of the major characters from both the Emperor Ocean Park and New England White, we meet in that novel when they were younger. they are oh. minor characters there, but we do meet them.
1: Um, because, in, uh, because it's going to be set in Harlem. Right, it begins
2: part. in Harlem. It, begins, it doesn't oh, okay. It doesn't end in Harlem. Part of it takes place in Harlem. A lot of it takes place in Washington, D.C. Some of it takes place in Vietnam. It takes place in a variety of different places. It was it was a tumultuous period. The, the novel begins... The novel encompasses what I consider the 1960s. For me, the 60s begin when Brown against Board of Education is decided in 1954 outlawing school segregation, and the 60s ends in 1974 when Nixon resigns. Mm -hmm. And so that's the period that's encompassed, that 20-year period they think of as the 60s. The reason I think of that period is because 54 uh, began an era of challenge to the status quo, progressive challenge to the status quo, in 1974, when Nixon resigned, um, those same forces become the status quo and have never quite been able to make peace with the fact that over the last 30 years they're in ascendancy rather than in, uh, in retreat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why the 60s were a period of, of upward, uh, of struggle to power, and people got into power and spent a lot of time trying to figure out what to do with it since then.
1: Right, right. Um, well, that'll make for an interesting an interesting setting for the, the third, well, see, the I hope third you, project. I hope then, people liked it as much okay. as
2: they seemed to be liking the first two
1: and um i'm sure i'm sure um so which which brings actually reminds me of something that i hope we'd talk about too um because you had mentioned civility being um is something uh an idea and a belief that's close to your heart um thurgood marshall uh you in part of your bio that we i didn't quite get to uh you yeah. you clerked for him i yeah? was
2: a law clerk for thurgood marshall um Some time ago, um, 1980 to 81, I got to know Justice Marshall a lot better. The last year of his life, he was working on an oral history project, and he asked me to be his interviewer, uh, which I did. And we, I think we recorded, we didn't finish, but I think we recorded around 34, 36 hours of tapes before he passed on. And and the thing, there's something, a lot of wonderful things I could say about Thurgood Marshall, but there's one particular I want to mention, which is something that's inspired me. I have not always lived by it, but I try. I never heard Thurgood Marshall say a bad word about anyone, and let me make it stronger. Thurgood Marshall was a man who would go out of his way to find something good to say about anyone. If you talked about some of the worst segregationists of the age, and I, treat, I consider racial segregation the great moral dilemma for America in the 20th century, and here you had a man, Thurgood Marshall, not only spent his life litigating against but often running for his life in the middle of the night from lynch mobs as he tried to fight for justice. And yet, in later years, talking about those days when you raise the names of great segregationists, he would go out of his way to find good things to say about them and he would say, I remember him discussing uh, one man and saying, a good man, a great man, who happened to believe in segregation, and he wasn't being facetious. His view of human nature was sufficiently capacious that he was not going to reject someone's humanity and hate them because they happened to be wrong. It's a lesson that has been lost in our current era when people spend so much time deciding who to hate and who to love, who to applaud and who to boo, but it's crucial if you're going to have a democracy. You must, as the base of democracy, I think, have a sense that across our differences, however deep, we're not going to hate, we're not going to reduce complex issues of slogans, and we're going to try to love our neighbor. And he really exemplified that. It's something I deeply believe in and have written about and argued about and lectured about and fought for for many years. I admit it doesn't look like it's making much difference,
1: but nevertheless- <laughs> No, it, keep going, keep it, fighting, it is a Stephen. <laughs>
2: cause, if there is a public cause in which I am passionate, that is the one in which I am most passionate, If there is a reason that I despair of our politics, and I do, Mm. um, it's for that reason that that politics today has been reduced to slogans and emotional appeals on both sides of the aisle. And who do you love and who do you hate? And that's not a fit politics for democracy. That's a a fit politics for a fascist state.
1: Right. You need a chance at conversation, a conversation happening between people who hold different ideas.
2: Uh, the, The conversation can only take place if we're willing to say that those who disagree with us aren't monsters or evil for disagreeing with us, they just disagree with us. And that's something I think that the television era has made that very hard, but that mm-hmm. it, it strikes me that if we can't teach that lesson to the young, they're not gonna inherit a democracy. They're gonna inherit a state, a, a country that's governed by mob rule, and the question will be who can organize the bigger mob by pushing the right buttons and appealing to slogans, and that's not democratic politics.
1: Right, marketing taking precedence no. rather than thought,
2: philosophy. Not even, well, you could, I guess you could call it marketing, but it's really, it, it's it's yelling. Branding. Yell- yeah, yelling yeah. taking, yelling. emotional. <laughs> bills. You know, f- 50 <laughs> Let's years ago- some shouting. <laughs> no, no, 50 years ago, Richard Hofstadter wrote two very good books about this. One was called Anti-Intellectualism in American Life, and one was called Their Paranoid Style in American Politics. And his point in both of those books was, as he saw the world in the 1950s, There was the liberal forces who believed in reason and patience and argument, and there were the reactionary forces who believed in slogans and emotional appeal and cheering and shouting people down. And I think he was right in describing the forces then, but today his description of the reactionary forces applies to the left and right equally, and that's what scares me. So that's why I preach about civility I told those one I told you before <laughs> we went on the air there's one issue I preach about and one only and that's the one
1: well that's nice it's good because we haven't had any preaching for a while on the living Writers. so <laughs> maybe we have because we actually had a show on um on uh, Fourth of July so um, okay. one of the writers was talking about how what we're really talking about here is freedom, so maybe that was approaching the but not you you were preaching it's, Civility. Strong, civility, yes. Civility. Um, but that also, I, I noticed on the web that you, you're you um, you're a contributor to Christianity Today magazine.
2: I was for and many years. I, I I was a columnist there for about six or seven years, yeah, that's and right.
1: So, and it seems like maybe four columns a year or something as the years go on. Something like, something like that, yeah. On. Because in that, I s- saw one of the more, well... Actually, I don't know if it was recent, but um, one of the columns was "You don't have, to, you know, don't hate the ACLU." <laughs> so it was really great. You well, know, I think Thurgood well, Marshall you know, would I, be very um, happy.
2: and and look, the ACLU is, you know, I'm a law professor. I think They're right about some things, wrong about other things. I'm not, I'm not a big fan, but I don't dump on them either. They're 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 the the ACLU is an interest group like the interest groups. They've got positions, but I wrote that column for Christianity Today because. Um, a lot of Christian evangelicals, particularly conservative evangelicals, seem to see the ACLU as an evil organization. Um, and I think it's slightly missed the, point. the ACLU has a philosophy, and the philosophy sometimes runs up against other people's philosophy. But, but other issues, it's quite consistent. So the ACLU has uh, many times um, defended the rights of uh, you know, um, Christian protesters or pro-life protesters, say, to participate in certain kinds of events and things like that, or uh, people to have certain kinds of church services without government regulation. Um, they, they certainly have defended the rights of Christians. There are other things that they've been at, they've certainly had conflicts with evangelical Christians but they've also been in support a lot of times. I think that But this is an example of what I'm talking about. That on the right and the left today we're so quick to think of groups and people as evil when their real sin is disagreeing with us. And I think that's a very dangerous trend.
1: Right, right. Yeah, Annie Lamott says in in her book, Bird by Bird, you know, you can, um, when God hates all the same people you do, you can pretty be pretty convinced that you've created him or her uh, in your mm. own image. But, um, well, let's, let's well, there's, talk there's, about there's a, your character. Let me say oh, there's a more formative okay.
2: way of making that point, which is that most Americans describe themselves as religious, um, as believing in God, and and we have a larger portion of our adult population regularly attending religious services than anywhere else in the developed world. But if people find year after year that none of their political convictions ever change as a result of whatever kind of religious services they're attending, they're probably attending the wrong religious services.
1: Okay. So on that note, we're going to take a break. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. So sure. Welcome back. If you're listening, if you're just tuning in, um, my name is T. Hetzel, The Living Writers Show, today talking with Stephen L. Carter. And we're going to talk, we're going to kind of come back from our, um, the public discourse and we're kind of zero back in on the, the book here. Um, and, a, and a question I wanted to ask, and maybe this will lead us to some other Stephen, um, that your characters, there's, religion has a presence in their lives, like Julia and LaMaster And there's even um, a moment when... Um, yeah. Is there anything?
2: Well, you know, a here, that? here's the interesting point that that in America uh, we have, by most measures of religiosity, the most religious nation in the Western world. A great majority of Americans say they believe in God and huge numbers of them seem to take that faith very seriously. But when you look at contemporary fiction, there's almost no characters have religious lives unless it's part of the plot, unless there's some religious aspect to it. I always try to make my characters well-rounded. I love character. I love—I mean—I write thrillers and mysteries, but character right. is what I really love, and I take a lot of time crafting them, coming up with their names, doing a lot of other things, and I try to make them well-rounded. And so religion is just part of their lives; it doesn't have to be central to the story in, in order for them to have religious lives. And so we know that Lamaster and Julia attend this stern Anglican congregation, uh, for example. Um, it doesn't really. It tells us a little bit about them, especially about, about Le, Master, Le Master, right? But at the same time, it also just fills in a detail that one could say is not different whether they played golf or something like that, right. except that it does. But it does, it does tell us about Le Master because Le Master is a character who he's locked into a vision of life that is bound by tradition and reason. His wife is clearly much more passionate. Um, He's eight years older than she is. Um, There's a line in the book uh, that a lot of readers tell me they really identify with where she remembers her grandmother warning her before they got married that if you marry a man because you want him to take care of you, you run the risk that he will. Mm. And that's her problem with the master, that he takes care of her. I mean, it sounds wonderful, but after a while it starts to stifle her a little bit. But that's his vision of himself. He can't imagine himself doing anything but what his tradition and reason tell him, which is, I've got to take care of my wife and the notion of leaving her on her own, to take care of herself, would never enter his mind. Where she wants the freedom, in effect, to uh, to fail sometimes.
1: Right. Right, that's, that's that's clear in the book because she gets out there on her own and uh, let's talk about mystery and thriller like the, the, the bywords that you're, used, yeah, the well, that you're is, using you know, the catchphrases that you're using in the book. It is true
2: when you go on a book tour and you're trying to sell a mystery and a thriller you've got to keep saying mystery and thriller as often as, as, as why possible. Why is that? Just, just well, because, well you, know, you know why? Because a lot of readers like mysteries and thrillers you know and, and I do try although I said mysteries and in character in all seriousness I, I try to craft the book in a way that there'll be surprises when you turn the page and I think it's no Accident. I'm a law professor. If you think about it, a lot of lawyers, when they turn to fiction, they write mysteries and thrillers. I think there's a reason for that. What do we all hate about lawyers? Here's what people hate about lawyers. If you go to a lawyer <laughs> and you say, I want to write my will, the lawyers say, Okay, but if you thought about it, if this happened, if this happened, what about this? What about this? What about this? They 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 weigh us down with contingencies. What right. if, what if, from the first day of law school, I as a law professor, it's my job to make to make them think that way, the first day, the first thing people discover in law school is whatever question they answer, whatever they answer to a question, the professor always says yes, but what if this, what if this? But what is a thriller really? But a set of contingencies. The author thinking, what if this happened, and then making it happen. Some surprising hypothetical around the next corner. I think there's a reason that lawyers tend to be drawn to mysteries and thrillers as writers because it's the way we think.
1: You know, it seems like you you're working though in a in a in a larger tradition, um, like like in kind of Faulknerian in a way. With the, um, because you're working in epics where they're they're continuing. You're you're building this world really. So do you? See yourself working outside of the mystery and the the thriller genre. What do you? you
2: I I would like to work outside, but somehow when I sit down to write, it ends up coming out that way. I don't know. Um, I have other um, novels on the drawing board, you might say, that might not be in that tradition. But one of the things I've discovered, for me, it's not true of every writer, but it's true of many of us, is that no matter what I think I'm going to write. I talked before my nonfiction books when I write nonfiction, I write an outline and I'm done basically with the book I just need to expand the outline when I write fiction I write an outline and the beginning and end stay the same but everything else in between changes as the characters develop and the plot develops and so on so somehow things have a way of becoming um but when I sat down to write The Emperor of Ocean Park I didn't sit down to write a thriller I sat down to write a family saga it became a thriller the more I wrote it it seemed to be taking on a certain shape
1: hmm okay the family well um so I wanted to ask you about your about secret societies a little bit because um, I know you said in the the um, the acknowledgements page that there's uh, there's no um, societies like the imperials and the um, yeah that, so um, but. But there are. But you did actually also say that um, that you had a great respect for the traditional clubs of the darker nation.
2: Yeah. In, so so can we the... talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. You, can you? Well, well no. Well, <laughs> it's interesting. I, I, I'm glad you raised that because the, the characters in this novel, some of them, like in my first novel, a lot of them are very accomplished African-Americans. Uh, a group that maybe doesn't get written about enough in literature anyway. Uh, and I think one thing that a lot of people outside black America don't realize, and a lot of black Americans don't realize, is that things like sororities and fraternities and private clubs that have really lost most of their importance in the, in the wider world, in the black community, they're still really very important. They're still um, – uh, the networking, the commitment to the traditions of the groups and the groups themselves – uh, whether we're talking about fraternities and sororities or other kinds of social groups, is still huge. And, and I think if you could look at, if you look at the Fortune 500, several of the Fortune 500 corporations are headed now by black men. And if you went to the Christmas party of one of the big black social groups and you see them dancing along with everyone else, there are uh, all this, lo- this room full of well-to-do black people having good time together. I think that even in the midst of an increasingly integrated professional world, for many of successful black people, as for many people of other kinds as well there 's often that urge, maybe that need to to kick back a little to sit and be in an atmosphere where you can be around other black people it 's not has nothing to do with hatred of or rejection of white people it 's more something like this: um, if you are a black family, raising your kids in a suburb that 's mostly white it 's going to mostly white schools. You find yourself worrying where are they going to get their black friends because where are they going to learn the traditions of our people, our history and culture? The fact that we sit there and tell them at the dinner table doesn't matter. It's having friends and others. And that's why you find some of these groups developing so that people can get together and, and keep those traditions alive
1: okay so th- so you're saying that that it's also that's that's lovely how you put that um and and it sort of steered s- steered away from i don't know why i was trying to get into secret societies but this aspect of like power in this country which which is a, a lot about like the a backdrop for this book well
2: power fascinates me as a legal scholar power has always fascinated me i'm a um I'm very old-fashioned in my view about power. Um, I, I, I believe in in process as as the key regulator of of power. But a lot, but there's such a thing as power exercised the back door and networking and things like that. And in Lamaster Carlisle, I tried to sketch someone. I mean, think about it. His college roommate is president of the United States. He another one of his good buddies is runs some gigantic hedge fund in California. Another one of his college roommates is a United States senator who's getting ready to run for president. Uh, he knows a lot of people. Uh, his wife talks about the magic way he can get things done with a telephone call. That kind of power fascinates me. Uh, it's not subject to regulation in the same way. It's a very important part of life, small or large. That is, even if you are on a college campus, um, we all know students who just seem to know everybody. It's just, you know, each of us has our circle of friends and buddies. And then there's people who seem to fit in every circle. And that's the kind of person that is a student of power. Mm-hmm. I'm absolutely fascinated by because here when I say power, I mean effective power. I don't mean power in the sense of deciding to go to war or not or what the tax rate should be. I mean the actual ability to get things done in the small or the large day today, the ability to simply – Pick up a phone, have someone do you a favor, owe you a favor, whatever it may be. We see that in virtually every kind of organization, and that's the kind of personal master is. I try to get across that he's the kind of person who would star in whatever he was doing.
1: But but then but he's also then involved in something that's a secret society, which mirrors like things that you hear about, like skull and crossbones, or you know, skull and bones, yeah, skull but, and bones. No, no,
2: that's <laughs> Obviously, I'm well well, 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 I'm, well, well I'm, acquainted with it. <laughs> well, they, they try to keep it secret. Um, but but no, the thing is that. Um, in black America, um, in addition to these the um, fraternities and sororities, there are various, not exactly secret societies, but certainly societies that have, for men and women alike, that have various traditions and things. They keep secret, secret passwords, secret handshakes, maybe even secret information. Who knows? But, um, and, and again, that's part of life in black America also for a very small set of, of successful people. But that part of life certainly exists.
1: And... It- for this coming novel, I, I read that you said that you were also doing interviews with people to to sort of um, round out knowledge or, or, or expand knowledge that you had of, for example, Harlem in, in that time period. And in, So was there was there an element of research um, to the writing of uh, New England White?
2: I do a lot of research for my novels. I think because I'm a scholar, a novel is always a little risky for me. When I write scholarship, all my facts have footnotes. And so mm-hmm. if someone thinks something's happening, so I go read the source. Maybe the source is wrong. But my. The ego's not on the line. <laughs> but when I write fiction, it's just me saying something happened. So as many things as I can well, involve facts I try to get right. I know I make some mistakes, so I try to get them right. Let me give you an example. In New England White, uh, Julia Carlyle is a collector of antique mirrors. Before I sat down to write the book, I knew nothing about antique mirrors. I had to do research. I had to go out and find information about that enough to make it plausible, to make what I said about mirrors plausible. In my first novel, there's a discussion of... Um, Uh, when Misha's wife has their baby, wife and child alike almost die. And I did some research interviewed an obstetrician uh, to make sure I got the details right of the particular problem they almost died from. Again, I just like to... Have those facts right? It probably doesn't. For ninety-nine percent of the readers, probably don't care if if what I say about uh, they want what it, about Muir is right or not. But that one percent would write me a letter and say you're an idiot. You don't know anything about that? And as a scholar, <laughs> I want to try to get it right. Now I could get some of it wrong. I, I'm not saying I am an expert on these things. I'm saying I try to learn enough about them that I can write sensibly about them.
1: That that makes total sense, you know. And it's and it's it's always that balance with the research and the imagination that you're you're yeah. you're creating the the novel, right? Um, which actually, that reminds me, there was a moment in the book, and I I should have actually looked up the page, but it said, um, I, I think one of the characters um, quotes a, a critic saying that um, that a, a male writer should never write in the voice of a, a of a woman's central character, and I just thought that was such a nice jab. I thought it was so f- um, funny because you you say it at the time when you've actually just been sort of where Julia's had you know held held the many pages. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Well, it, yeah, I, I do have fun. There are a few, a few little intentional jokes in my novels, and that's certainly one of them. But, you know, but, but it's a fair point to raise. I often get the question, was it hard to write a novel where two-thirds of the story is told in a woman's voice? And the answer is yes, of course it was. But in my first novel, it wasn't easy either. My first novel, people think since it was told in the first person, it must have been easy. But it was an invented first person. It wasn't my voice. It was someone else's voice. And that was difficult also. I, I think that anyone who takes... Unless you're just filling your book with cardboard characters. If you take writing seriously, it should always be hard to invent and sustain a voice. Um, at least I always find it difficult. My third novel is told almost entirely from one point of view. Again, a point of view very different from my own. It's hard work to do that. It, 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 the fact that it's a woman makes it hard, but also the fact that someone of a different character makes it hard. Um, I have a later novel where the main character is going to be a white woman, for example. Will that be harder than a black woman? I don't think it's going to be hard in different ways. Right. That's all. <laughs> it, it's, for me, it's all hard. Writing novels, it's a labor of love. I enjoy doing it, but it's very hard work.
1: And when are you when are you finding time to do it? Because it seems like you, you'd you have to kind of click into this world of the imagination, and it seems like what your 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 day job <laughs> as a, a Yale law no, professor, no, you're I mean, right. it's very yeah, that, it's that, different, that, the way the mind moves.
2: You're right, and that's a fair question. Question: I do have a day job. I take it very seriously. I love teaching my students. I love being a legal scholar. It is not easy to find time to write fiction. Maybe that's why it's five years between novels. But I, um, I write Although a lot. Although you have
1: three on your laptop, so I don't well, know. But, I'm not but, buying but that. I, I
2: write. I well, I write on weekends. I write at night. I don't get need that much sleep. I, late at night, it's quiet. Uh, it varies sometimes I'm in the mood to write for a few days and sometimes I'm not and then I'll do something else but as for having some on my laptop I, I love writing the thing is mm. I, I'm I'm just one of these people when I have nothing do I write something I always start something new if you give me a blank page I'll start writing on it that's what I do
1: oh that's well that's it's the, that's the, the mark of the writer isn't it
2: that's one mark of the writer. There's another mark of the writer. I always meet people at book signings who tell me, I think I have a novel in me. What advice? And you know, No, most it's the, the
1: actual doing. Well, no, most of they probably do. <laughs> I,
2: I really believe a lot of people have books in them, but, but here's what I tell them. I tell them, if you want to be a real writer, this is the moment you know you're a writer. One day, your best friend calls and wants to go out that night with a lot of people you really like to do, your favorite thing in the world, whatever that is, and can you say to that person, I can't tonight because I have to write. If you if you had to if you were a lawyer and you had a brief due tomorrow they'd understand. If you said I've got a rest because I'm doing open heart surgery tomorrow, or my boss told me to work late, they'd understand. But can you make it a job? Can you say I can't, not I have to write? Can you treat that commitment as the same as any other commitment? I tell them when you do that, you're a writer. That's what I tell them.
1: Mm-hmm. So. And it's interesting though to use it also as like because you say the word job, and sometimes I struggle with that thinking about writing as work because I thought if to say writing is the work that gives it the the um, the, the the primary. Spot in your life, maybe, but then I I'm thinking maybe I'm going about that wrong a little bit. Like like writing is art, being the, like the work is what you you kind of uh, so no, you find the joy. Writing and,
2: is art, but finishing art, finishing it is work. I mean, and, and right. a lot of a lot of artists <laughs> will tell you the same thing. A lot of artists right. will tell you, you know, they do it for the art, but finishing it is work. Selling it is work. Those are that right. it's, it's also a job. Um, I, I really don't believe, I know people disagree with, in the concept of art of art without a public. And people say actually say this is actually a very Marxian view, and maybe it is. But but I really don't believe in art without a public. I, I think that art for the sake of the artist alone is a different thing than what we tend to think when we think of art. I'm not saying it can't be a valuable thing to do or to spend one's life, but it's not art as I conceptualize art. Art is something that ultimately takes the risk of being shared, of letting your vision be shared and distorted because no one will ever read my novels the way I meant them to be read. No one, if I were a painter, don't ever look at my paintings the way I meant them. They'd read something into them. That's fine, that's what makes it art. It's part of a conversation. Yes, it's the not, communication. it is not a monologue.
1: Right, right. Well, um, well, it looks like, you know, that. We're running out of time. Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, it's gone by so quickly. It's been so Stephen. much fun. And so maybe, thank you. Thanks for coming. Maybe, um, maybe you'll come, if you're next summer, maybe, we'll see, maybe I'll see you again. And um, That would be great. That would be great. Thank you so much. Um, you've been listening to The Living Writers Show. Thanks, Chaz, for engineering uh, Stephen L. Carter and his book, uh, New England White. Um, thanks. Oh, and next week, Thileas Moss. Bye-bye.
0: What <laughs>
2: This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, July 18th, 2007. Filling in for Ado Bogado, I'm Mitch in New York. We have reaction to a failed Iraq troop reduction amendment after an all-night debate in the Senate. Human Rights Commission in Mexico opens an investigation into the most recent clashes in Oaxaca City. And dozens are arrested in Honduras after protesting a new mining law. have these stories and more after these news headlines.
1: I'm Shannon Young with today's headlines. At least 189 people have been confirmed dead in what has become the worst air accident in Brazilian history. The airplane's pilot overshot the dangerously short landing strip in Sao Paulo's airport in rainy weather and slammed into a nearby fueling station yesterday. All 186 people on board were killed, as were at least three people on the ground. Fires burning at six different points of a major oil pipeline in Nigeria's Niger Delta region are causing pollution and endangering the lives of local people. Samuel Koya reports from Lagos.
0: The fires in Ogoni land in the eastern Niger Delta have been burning since early last month. The pipeline belongs to the Anglo-Dutch oil company Shell. The fires are believed to have started after militants fighting for a share of oil resources attacked the pipeline local residents say the fires are burning close to human settlements and have destroyed their farmlands and put their lives at risk an elementary school is located less than 100 meters from one of the fires only shell has the capacity to fight fires of this magnitude in